The scripture reading tonight comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 21 through 36. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Select lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood which is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to slay the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to slay you. You shall observe this rite as an ordinance for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he slew the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord smote the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where one was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and go, and go forth from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We are all dead men. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their mantles on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked of the Egyptians jewelry of silver and of gold and of clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they despoiled the Egyptians. The word of the Lord. freedom might be sort of an abused concept in America, plastered somehow on red, white, and blue billboards, tied to patriotism. Let Freedom Ring is a website for Tea Party libertarians, who, judging from the content, think that freedom means freedom to buy guns. We're so proud of ourselves for being a free country, but everyone is in debt, and people spend their free time at the mall. I'm not sure we know what it means to be a sweet land of liberty. But still, I really do think that we're on to something when we identify it as a matter of paramount importance. Freedom really is huge and important and one of humanity's central longings. 
Maybe even all of creation's central longings. Doesn't everything hate a cage? We long to be free even if we hardly know what it means. The Exodus is such a profound and important story because it identifies God as a God who frees. God sets the captives free. That is deeply embedded in our faith. That's cool, seriously. There are tyrannical forces everywhere. The mall, the man, the machine. I think it might even be vaguely scientific to say there are pharaohs in our genes. I mean vaguely scientific. Tyrannical forces are in our DNA. It's like we're pre-programmed. There's something practically cellular, cellular that binds us or mutes us or locks us in genetic predisposition. There are so many things that seem totally inescapable. For example, I find myself saying more and more frequently, maybe 20 times in the last month with some surprise and not much glee, I'm becoming my mother. It's a trajectory I've made some effort to avoid, but it doesn't seem to be within my capacity. Not to say becoming my mother is like being enslaved to the pharaoh. She's very wonderful. I just thought I might not become my mother. I think we're all slaves to something. And I don't mean to trivialize it by universalizing it, but I do mean to universalize it. Our love is limited by something. Anxiety, depression, addiction, disease, work, poverty, money, winter, Germanic blood, Scandinavian ancestry. We need a God who is a liberator, whether we're actively conscious of it or not. And then here you have it in just the second book of the Bible, a story about a God who frees, a God of the oppressed, hallelujah, you know, that is so much what we desperately need. And this story has empowered the oppressed across time and culture and space and identity, African-American slaves, peasants in Germany, housewives, Latin American revolutionaries, Rastafarians, Baptist grandmas. To believe in a God or a truth or a way that frees people from the domination of whatever Pharaoh system, DNA haunts and imprisons them. I mean, right on. The Pharaoh is horrible. When Moses starts asking for the people's freedom, he makes their burdens worse. He takes away the straw that they use to make bricks. And then he has them beaten if they don't produce. He's mean. He's a bully. Living under the Pharaoh's way must have been terrible, or is terrible. But even given all the undeniable, undeniable archetypal beauty of a founding narrative of liberation, you can't look at this story without having a couple of questions. I mean, this is God to Pharaoh. I'm quoting God. Israel is my firstborn son. If you refuse to let him go, I will slay your firstborn son. I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that's not really portraying Yahweh in his finest light. God says, if you don't let my children go, I'm going to kill your children. That's just not very mature. You might hope
hope for something a little less toddler-esque from God. Something a little less barbaric, actually, is the word that comes to mind. There's a thread from this Exodus story picked up over and over again that's beautiful. But the actual story? Pharaoh won't let God's people go. So... God turns all the Egyptian water into blood. Their rivers, their canals, their ponds, says even all the water and all their vessels and all their kitchens, it all becomes blood and all the fish die and there's no water anywhere for any Egyptian to drink, just blood. That sounds like something that you might find in a fantasy video game for adolescent boys. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you'd like to see from a God that you might hope to trust. But so the blood doesn't convince Pharaoh to let the people go. So then God sends a plague of frogs. Frogs that will come into your bedchamber and into your bed. Frogs that will come into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. That sounds like something a seven-year-old girl might say to get back at her friend who didn't invite her to her sleepover. You're going to get frogs in your bed. And then it's gnats, and then it's flies, and then it's locusts who come to eat everything up. I mean, the whole thing reads like something you would find in children's literature. And it seems like maybe those are fine antics for Junie B. Jones. Frogs in your bed. Or Jack and the Beanstalk. Or Voldemort. But for God? The bugs and the frogs are maybe a little bit funny, but then things get really dark. Literally, the second to last plague is darkness. A darkness, the text says, to be felt. That seems very, very scary and very, very creepy to me. And then it just gets really over-the-top, graphically, horribly terrible. There's one plague more, and this is the plague that will finally break Pharaoh plague of the slain of the firstborns. God slays the firstborns in all of Egypt. God slays all the Egyptians, Miles and Marias and Rubies and Heralds and Henrys and Raymonds and Rogers, and you get the point? Horror. God slays the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne and the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the mill and the firstborn of the captive that is in the prison and the firstborn of the cattle. The text goes so far in describing this horror that you have to wonder if it isn't trying to make you uncomfortable. I mean, okay, you're reading the story, and you maybe feel a sense of righteousness or a sense of justice when the cruel slave master is taken down. Maybe even you feel a slight bit of exhilaration when the mastermind of cruelty is undone. But Then the narratives take you down into the houses. The Egyptian mothers are crying as their babies die. The story is told in a way that provokes questions, to put it mildly, in a way that insists on questions, really. It doesn't let you sit very long comfortably hating the pharaoh, because the implications of that become apparent. The sort of grand magisterial narrative of the chosen people is constantly giving hints of its own limitations. 
The narrative of triumph is so thin in places that you have to wonder if the undermining of it isn't part of the unique genius, the unique beauty of the Hebrew scripture. The narrative of the chosen people is problematic. The narrative of the chosen people is a dismantling sort of orthodoxy. The text dismantles institutions in the very breath it establishes them. The Passover, an important institution. The story of the Passover is in no way bright and beautiful. God says he's going to slay all the firstborns of Egypt, and in order to keep themselves out of the path of this powerful murdering force, the Hebrews are supposed to kill a lamb and then smear the lamb's blood shed, their blood on their doorposts. So that when this bloodthirsty destroyer comes through, he'll pass over their houses and just kill the Egyptians. I mean, you would have to have blinders on not to question that narrative. The text tells the story of that night, and it also steps out of the story of that night to establish the institution of the Passover meal. And God gives intricate, sort of specific instructions for this ritual. A lamb, unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. And this is all to be done, and this is the kind of amazing thing, in order to actually generate a question. In the springtime of every year, God says you should prepare this meal, just like I said, for generations and generations, so that your children and your grandchildren will ask, Why do you do these things? If an institution can institute a question, this is an institution that institutes a question. The story doesn't at all erase the possibility of questions. It ensures them. Questioning is the movement necessary for truth to be generated in rabbinic Judaism. There's something about that that is just so ever-moving and dynamic. There's a lot of freedom in that. Far from muting or binding, it's a kind of loosing. The question is the center of the Passover meal. And that really has been how it's been practiced for centuries. The Haggadah read on every Passover every year suggests that there's four different types of children or four different sorts of possible attitudes to the story of Exodus, the story of liberation from Egypt. There's a wise child who totally sees the questions and knows the questions and asks them. And then there's the wicked child who does know the question but refuses to ask them. And then there's the simple child who knows the questions but is totally indifferent to them. And then there's the ignorant child who doesn't know the questions and so can't even ask them. And the point is this is sort of that the expression of faith, the expression of wisdom, isn't a statement of belief at all, really. It's a statement expressed as a question. This really hasn't been much the way in post-Constantinian Christendom. But it does sort of seem like it's the way of Jesus, who asks more questions than he answers. The scripture just really doesn't lay down a master narrative that can't be questioned. It does something to us, I think. 
It gets us involved. It tells us this story where we're horror-struck. What happens to the Egyptians? You're kidding me. And maybe that's how it works in our hearts. Nearly every culture, every religion, every empire for sure tells stories about a God who is on their side. The Hebrew narrative dismantles the notion of that the very moment it's laid down. I think that's the only kind of scripture I'd want to have. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of unquestionable facts. It doesn't even give us unquestionable stories. It doesn't give us unquestionable anything about a distant deity that we're supposed to be subservient to. It doesn't give us unquestionable morality. It doesn't give us a fixed narrative that settles everything once and for all. Instead, it leads us into this sort of tangle This tangle of actually heartbreaking stories, of contradictions, of twists and turns. It gets us involved in this struggle of unruly questioning human beings. Human beings who are constantly being sought after by God. It really doesn't seem at all to be trying to make us slaves to some master ideology. I think it's possible that scripture really does witness to a God who longs to set us free. Free to love and be loved. Eating the Passover meal is said to give whoever eats it a taste for freedom. 